You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. I succeeded in opening part of the old gate sufficiently wide to lead Della, my mare, through, and then I remounted. The avenue was quiet, save for a rustle here and there as a small animal slipped away from the intruding hooves. Then I rounded the corner and gasped. It commanded total attention, a full halt to take in its splendor, Who had ever seen such a building, such grandeur, such romantic mystery, except in the pages of a child's storybook? From a distance, the house looked steady and intact, and the towers had such authority, the walls so strong, the terraces so wide, so generous, the little bridge so sound and firm. I had been here once before as a boy of twelve or so, but this view far excelled that memory. The construction of the house had been famously sturdy. Therefore, ruin had entered with caution, and it advanced only slowly. Shales of glinting slate held many blue-black expanses of the roof together, and the square eastern tower stood completely intact with its battlements like rows of teeth. A great front door stood askew within its frame, leaning as though it had a hand on its hip. It seemed barred in some way from inside. I remember father telling us that the timber had been so massive it took six men, using ramps and wedges, to hold the door in place, while the carpenters hung it on hinges that were almost six feet deep. They secured it with nails seven inches long that they had fashioned at the site. Frank Delaney was born in Tipperary, Ireland, he created Bookshelf and Word of Mouth for the BBC. He's written seven books of nonfiction, including Simple Courage, and 11 works of fiction, including his latest novel, Tipperary. Thank you for joining me, Frank. A pleasure, Rick. Frank, at its core, this is a novel about land. The land, isn't it? It's about land. It's about the hunger for land. It's about the understanding that land to the Irish means individuation, to use a good word from therapy. It's about the fact that land is your identity because land is what feeds you. It enables you to feed your family. You can use your land to grow your crops and feed your animals, and therefore you become dependent on no man. And if there's anything that is an incitement to passion, it's individuality. That's what it's about. This novel is called Tipperary. You were born in Tipperary. Not only that, but my house appears on the antique maps that form the genuine antique maps that form the end papers of this book. I like maps in a book, even if it's a novel. I like the idea that the mind needs a direction, needs a place to go, needs a place to look at, even if you only look at it when you begin to read the book and then abandon it. And this is also a novel about something we rarely think about, Rick, which is sense of place. We have seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, and touching. But you think of the books you really love. Think of the childhood books that you go back to in your mind again and again. And what they are is sense of place. Look at Tolkien's worlds, the worlds he created. Think of the space fantasies. Think of Gatsby, 
the green light at the end of Daisy's Dock, those wonderful parties in those huge houses on the shoreline of the east coast, the eastern seaboard. Think of the last of the Mohicans, the woods, the lakes, the mountains. Uh, think of any book that's important to you since childhood, and it will have one thing in it, and that will be a place to which the author takes you and where he enables you to live for the duration of reading that book and for as long as your imagination wishes to dwell upon it thereafter. Books like this one, and like those you mentioned, are indeed places to which you can return in memories. And in this sense, the reading experience becomes the equivalent of a vacation. That's the point. That's the whole point. That's absolutely, you've absolutely got it. I used to know John Fowles very well. And John had a principle that when you were traveling, when you were going on vacation somewhere, don't just bring a guidebook. Bring, if you can, a novel that is set in the place you're going to. Because the novelist will have visited that place, perhaps physically, but certainly with his spirit. And that is where we all make the connections. So therefore, this is a novel set in the place I grew up, in the fields in which I roamed and played as a boy, in the castle that I saw as a child, even though it's called Thomastown Castle in real life, and now uh, a pile of crumbled stones. This is a place to which I can take you, the reader, and keep you there, and I hope enchant you with the details of the place, and give you a place to return to when you seek to escape, when you're driving along the freeway, when you can't sleep at night, uh, and you want to remember a book you've read, you want to remember a time of enchantment from that book, this place, Tipperary, I hope, where I come from, where my spirit lives, will reward you in that way. In this book, for you, and for you, I believe, history is geography. History is geography. Um, think of the histories we read. We, the history of the United States is about the, mainly the 48 contiguous states and the building of them. Um, all of our history has to do with the place where the history was made. In Ireland, the history was made by the geography of the country, stuck out up there in the northwest of Europe, a tiny rocky island with very fertile land in the middle, next to a greedy neighbor, next to a neighbor who wished to annex this country on account of its fertility and, I believe, on account of its personality. Had England not been... Ireland's nearest neighbor. How different would our history have been? We lived next to a country. The island is located next to an island which made war all over Europe, which created an empire by annexing other countries, by governing other countries. We were the nearest neighbor. Ironically, though, we were the first to put a dent in that empire. We were the first to loosen the grip of the empire across the world as we did in the 1920s, which is where this book comes to a conclusion. One of the things that's wonderful about this book is to learn the history in, on a personal scale. You've done a really clever, I think, metafictional, literary, almost experimental kind of literary conceit here because you introduced us to two different narrators. And this gets to another really important part of this book, and, and I believe your writing, is the act of storytelling and narration. We have two different narrators here. We do. You raise such an interesting point, and nobody has referred to this yet in any of the conversations I've been having about this book, and there have been many. You're right to call it a metafiction. The point is that narration is the core 
of novel writing now. Within that, you can bend the rules as James Joyce did. No matter how you look at James Joyce's Ulysses, it is nonetheless a story of two men wandering through Dublin on a particular day until they eventually meet at one o'clock in the morning. That's what it is. In this book, I found the main character, a good man, with no malice, no spite, no violence, no viciousness in him, was actually too fragile emotionally to carry the entire story. So I had to give him others who would tell the real story of him. He's not going to say, look at me, I'm a good and loyal and decent man. He's not going to keep on saying that. But if you give him other people, like a modern narrator who finds this man's personal history, and then like his dear and close friend who's also a practical hard-headed freedom fighter, a soldier, a member of the IRA, who went out and fought against the English army in the 1920s, in the ni- in 1910s and 1920s, if they tell the story of him, and if his mother's journal tells the story of him, then you get the character built up all the time. The old question, to return to the point of metafiction, the old question about writing fiction is, is plot character or is character plot? My view always is, create the character and then see what happens to them. In this book, the character has been created and we now sit back and see what happens to him. And we learn that through narration, through storytelling, because as E.M. Foster said, the novel tells a story. Oh, dear me, yes, the novel tells a story. One thing I I really love about this book is the way you pair these two narrators off against one another. Charlie will experience something, and he'll experience it from his point of view, and then we'll get our modern narrator telling us kind of the overview. And you must have had a lot of fun going back and forth between those voices in cooking up these different uh, slants. There's a huge amount of fun in this book. Uh, there's, a, there's a lot of tongue-in-cheek in this book. Some of the reviewers have missed that point. For example, the main character, Mr. O'Brien, my wandering healer, he meets the poet William Butler Yeats. He meets James Joyce, and he tells Joyce, for example, if you are going to write something, make it complicated so that people will remember you for longer, right? Joyce then produces the most complicated books probably ever written in the English language. Um, this was all this was all in good fun. The real fun, as you say, though, was in bringing along the second narrator to correct the first one. Michael Nugent, the modern teacher, who is still alive as far as I'm concerned, even though he's a fictional character, writing this in 2005, makes comment on Charles O'Brien's work all the time. And then, of course, we realized through the introduction of the other narrators that neither man is totally 100% reliable. And that's fun because that's very, very Irish. And it's also, to my mind, very like life. You go to a party, Rick, and you ask, and there's an incident. And then the following day, you meet three people who were at that party. And you ask them for their view of it. You get four different stories, yours and theirs, four different stories. That, in a sense, is what this book is about. We get a number of views of the central character, and in doing so, we learn a huge amount about Ireland as well. One of the parts, the scenes that I absolutely loved was when when uh, Charlie meets... We, we've been with Charlie for a while before mm. he meets the love of his life, right. April. And our impression of Charlie is that he's a pretty stand-up guy. He's got, he, he's, you know, a professional. He's, he's a healer. Yet when she meets him, she describes him as somebody rather different than what we have come to see him as he sees himself. And this kind of split in the uh, perceptions of Charlie 
uh, is great and, and even better. He knows it knows his, it himself. He has a view of himself to begin with, that he is rather dashing and gallant. He describes himself as rather like a musketeer. Um, we do get a physical description of him later in the book, which I don't normally do. I never describe characters. I'd rather leave that to you, the reader. You'll do a much better description of the character you want than I will do. But he's described as rather like an Irish Beethoven, a big man with a flowing mane of yellow hair, a head like Beethoven's. And, um, and he meets this girl, and he thinks he's rather dashing, and a man for all seasons, a cosmopolitan and sophisticated man. She, on the other hand, sees a rather untidy, possibly drunken, um, not very clean, and rather fumbling, awkward, inept Irishman, a barbarian. She's a young, cool, educated, high society, English miss of the 19th century, and she wants nothing to do with this lout, as she calls him. He pesters her for a while, and she actually has the police remove him from Paris through the power of the British Embassy and through her friend Dr. Tucker, who is Oscar Wilde's doctor. She meets him at Oscar Wilde's bedside when Wilde is ill, and they summon Charles O'Brien to see if he can heal him. So therefore, you get the total contrast between her view of him as expressed to him and his view of him, which is rather different. But she does write a letter to a friend in which she is not nearly, not nearly so critical of him as she is to his face. And the second thing is, later in the book, you find through his friend, who observes a meeting between the two of them, a really rather painful meeting, the friend, Johanny, the soldier, the other commentator on Charles O'Brien, his dearest friend, he observes the way she looks at Charles O'Brien, the man she calls a louter barbarian. And Hani says, I would love to have a woman look at me like that. There are so many details in this book that are really interesting, but something that, that I was fascinated by was the uh, hedgerow medicine that, that he practices. <laughs> um, could you talk a little bit about that? Did you research this hedgerow medicine? Because I, I've found this very fascinating. Don't try this at home sort of medicine. <laughs> um, it's well-established. It's a well-established principle in Ireland. Remember that in Ireland, only the upper classes had doctors. The country was too poor. The people had no medicine. They had no doctors. So there were folk cures. This is common all over the world. Here in the United States, you had the snake isle, the snake isle charmers who went around with a bottle of snake oil, which did everything. It restored your hair. It restored your powers. It made women, gave women beautiful complexions. There was a sense in which herbalism was a kind of local medicine, but it was extremely unreliable. There were some interesting cures. For example, nettle soup will make you sleep. It will, by the way. <laughs> um, the way to remove a corn from your toe is to tie an ivy leaf tight around the toe, and it will remove the corn, and it will. Foxglove, also called digitalis, is in the right sort of mixture, very good for heart complaints. So there's quite a lot of good stuff there, but it's unreliable. When I grew up, there was a, there was a lot of folk medicine. There were a lot of local cures. People had folk cures as a hangover from the days when there, wasn't, there were no doctors. But these were usually administered by quacks, and you dare not go to your doctor after you had been to a quack and tell him you'd been to a quack, because God knows what damage the doctor did, and God knows what damage poor Mr. O'Brien, my traveling herbalist, did as well. But he did his best. 
I, and I'm want to ask you about the the research for this book. Do do you do a lot of research? Do you go to primary sources and go to visit all the places you're writing about and photograph them? Or? When I was a young man in my late teens, I worked in banking, and because I was the junior in any office in which I worked, the older men who had families got the prime choice of vacations. Nobody went on vacation because you couldn't close down the office. Nobody went on vacation all at the same time. So my vacations were spent in March and October. And I decided, because I had no money, I had decided that the best way I could spend a vacation, I didn't want to go home. I didn't have anywhere to go to. I could. The money was, the job was so poorly paid. I decided to discover my own country. So I walked all over Ireland. I have been in every town and village and county and parish on the island of Ireland, every single one on foot. I didn't know at the time, but I was stacking up research. I didn't know at the time that I was also learning, acquiring, by osmosis almost, facts. I kept notebooks. I wrote things down that interested me. Now, to answer your question more directly, my research takes two forms. First of all, I would research something I don't know, and I would always go to primary sources. Secondary sources are unreliable. Newspapers are particularly unreliable. Um, you will get three different versions of the same story in the same newspaper, three days running. And then I do something else. When I put down a lot of things that I know, I then fact check them. This is the history I don't research. I fact check. So I do reverse research, if you like. I put the thing in the book, and then I check it. And I go back and check it. And I am surprised by how much I get right, and I am surprised by how much I get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> this is a big book, and it's your second kind of in this, what I would call the <clears throat> big fat historical epic genre. This isn't, this is a kind of a new direction for you in terms of your writing. And what made you go in this direction? I have always had this urgent need to tell a history of my country in fictional form. I've thought about doing it in long poetic form and long narrative poems. And I thought I would read a wide, reach a wider audience by writing it in novels. I've got two more novels to do in what will effectively be a quartet of novels. The next novel is going to be called Shannon, which is set along the banks of the River Shannon, will feature a young American priest who goes to Ireland in the middle of the Irish Civil War in an attempt to find his ancestors. He's shell-shocked from World War I, and his mentors believe his spirit will be healed by the healing waters of the Shannon. Along those banks somewhere lived his ancestors, so he goes up one side and comes back down the other. And there will be a fourth book after that, which will bring the thing, the whole saga up to date beyond the year in which I was born. I have a passion in me to explain my country, I realize. And since you forced me to think about it now, here's my answer. I think it was because I felt, as a reporter covering the recent troubles in Ireland for the BBC, I covered them in the 70s and 80s, I think it's because I felt my country was so not known to the world at large. And I'm trying to write books that you can pick up here in California or that a woman at Little Rock, Arkansas, who's heard the name Ireland or maybe knows some Irish neighbors or neighbors of Irish descent, will read and learn about my country. I don't know why it is. It's a kind of mission to explain. But golly, I want to do it in an entertaining way. Some of the, the history of Ireland that, that I, I've learned, one of the, the things I really enjoyed about books like this, and this book in particular, was the way that 
the things that have happened in Ireland, there have many parallels now and parallels that are literally tearing our world apart. And the thing that leaps to mind is the parallel between the situation in Palestine and what happened to the Irish and the Anglo-Irish. It's, it's remarkable and frightening. What's even more remarkable is what has happened in Ireland today, where there has been a complete rapprochement between the Catholics and the Protestants. People who hated each other more than any Arab hated any Jew have come together. They have been recently visiting the President of the United States. Men who were so bitterly opposed to each other, they wouldn't even want to be in the same city at the same time, are now working side by side in cooperative government partnership in a sweet and easy way. And, and the older man who was the the vociferous Protestant leader, Ian Paisley, is being looked after like a son by the younger man, Martin McGuinness, or so I hear uh, along the diplomatic circuit. It is an extraordinary development. If Ireland, given the history of the bitterness, if Ireland, where 85% of the land was owned by 15% of the people until the, the other, the mainstream people got their land back, if Ireland can heal itself like that, Anybody can. The depth of the bitterness, the ferocity of the bitterness was indescribable. I was refused drinks in bars just because I spoke with a southern accent. There were men at the very top of the social tree, leading surgeons, leading politicians who would not shake hands with me because I came from the south. I was a mere reporter. I was a mere journalist covering it. People who wouldn't speak to me because I came from the south. Now all that's over. If it can end in Ireland, where the depth of bitterness goes back hundreds of years, it can end anywhere. And some of the things we learn that that the practices are, are almost inconceivable to me. The, the idea that Catholics could not own books, could, could be deported for, for owning books, it, it, it's bizarre. This is the unknown history. The unknown history of Ireland covers the years from the late 1500s to the early 1800s, where English kings wished all their subjects to be Protestants. The Irish were largely Catholic. They were 85% Catholic. Um, so they took their land away from them and all their rights, everything, the right to education, the right to learn to read or to write, the right to own a horse, the right to own land, the right to anything in the world in order to try and subdue them. It was, in fact, call it what it was, it was an attempted genocide. Genocide through pressure. It wasn't a physical massacre, genocide with weapons. It was reducing them, reducing them, reducing them, so that they either left the country or took to the roads, the forerunners of the modern traveling people, the tinkers, the gypsies, or, and, the, and the people who flooded into the United States, to subdue them completely and make Ireland a Protestant country. It failed. The Protestants who came in were, in many parts, very decent people. But this is how it worked. Rather like Nazi Germany, just before the war, you would wake up one morning to hear somebody hammering on your front door. You go downstairs, and there outside is a party of red-coated soldiers or a party of police, and standing beside them is a family who now owns your land and farm. As to education, a, a teacher or a priest could be shot at sight for a bounty, not and not that there was any legal punishment for a bounty. My grandfather had two uncles who were deported to Australia for owning books. And that went on for 250 years. My God. Yes. <laughs> that's, am I know. that's amazing. 
250 years. And it's an untold part of Irish history. It's very well known to the Irish. It's known as the, penal, the period of the penal laws. It started with what they call the plantations, which is the planting of English and Scottish Protestant families into Irish Catholic farms, um, and then continued into the penal laws, which denied you the right to practice your religion at all. And if you were a Catholic and insisted on continuing being a Catholic, you could not have a job, an official job. You couldn't work for the government. You couldn't work for anybody in an official capacity. You weren't allowed to be anything. You were reduced, reduced, reduced. You tell a lot of stories and stories within stories in this book, and, and it's a really effective method of creating a kind of pixelated view. So we see everything from multiple points of view, and, and we get all the witnesses' stories of the crime, and none of them exactly jibe with one another. <laughs> um, but I'm thinking of one point where Charlie talks about two stories. There's Mr. Lenahan and Mr. Catherwood. Yes. Those are really fascinating stories. O'Brien, my traveling healer, my traveling diarist, my traveling amateur historian and journalist, is very interested in what ordinary people think and say. And because the country is boiling up into an agitation over land, he wants to know what defines or describes, what clinches the Irish passion for land. So he goes and interviews two farmers, about as different as two men could be, one a modest Catholic farmer from County Limerick, a man called Martin Lenahan, from a village called Ula, and the other a prosperous Protestant farmer brought in, whose family came in from Scotland 300 years earlier, called Henry Catherwood near Enniskillen in Northern Ireland. Both live in extremely beautiful land. Both live in very fertile land. Both have identical farming experience, except that Mr. Catherwood has a lot more land than Mr. Lenahan. But Mr. Lenahan keeps his, supports his family, and Mr. Catherwood supports his family from their farms. They both have differently expressed, identical passion for their land. They both would kill for their land. They both want to die in their own fields. They both know every stone, every hill, every wrinkle, every hollow in their own fields. They both have contact with the earth. They put their hands on the clay and they feel it. They draw the dirt up into their hands and they sniff it and they look at it and they examine it. And they both have a connection to the land that is as driving a human passion as anything you could imagine. And that seems to me to summarize a lot of what caused the problems in Ireland, a completely laudable passion for land, but one so strong that anybody crossing it is bound to get into trouble. The sense of time, too, here is it's phenomenal. I mean, America's barely 200 years old, and we have two battling factions in Ireland, and this is something I really hadn't understood with any um, detail until I, I, I read your book, we have a, a battle between people who have been in Ireland for millennia and right. people who have been in Ireland for centuries. I know. <laughs> and it, it seems really <laughs> odd. Well, there's an old saying, the English remember too little and the Irish remember too much. We have very little concept of time in Ireland. In any way, there's an old saying that there is no word in Ireland that conveys the same urgency as the word manana. Well, it's the same looking back. Um, there was a kind of hierarchy. The older your family were, the more rights you had. My own family name is traceable for the first time in, in writing by Irish monks to the year 464. Now, that is 1,300 years before the United States 
150 years before the United States is founded. Um, so therefore, we would look on anybody coming in after that as a carpetbagger, you know, a blow-in. <laughs> so how could people who get land in 1585 in Munster, in my home province in the south, how could they be in any way entitled to what we have had for you know, at least a thousand years before that. When St. Patrick came to Ireland in 432, this Roman evangelist bringing the Christian faith with him, the country was governed by 150 petty kings, petty in the French word, petite, small kingships, who serviced the provincial kings, who serviced the high king with taxes and tributes. Um, and those names, those 150, were McCormick's, O'Brien's, McCarthy's, Clancy's, Delaney's. They were the names we know of modern Ireland, and they were well-established names before the birth of Christ. So how then could you turn around and tell these people, 1,500 years later, this is no longer your land? That is a recipe for disaster. They had a right to be riled up. In a book that covers time that was turbulent, bloody, marked by war, rebellion, repression. Yet this book is has a, a feeling of sublime beauty and joy throughout. How did you manage to reconcile horrific events with a, a feeling of, of joy and love? I'm very interested in ambivalence. And, you know, I'm influenced to a great extent. This sounds a very pretentious thing to say, so I'll risk it anyway. I'm very interested by painters. Very often to get a book started, a book's ideas going, I would go to an art gallery, a big gallery, a big national gallery somewhere here or somewhere in the States or in Europe or whatever. And I'm fascinated by the way the difficult and the sublime sit side by side. I think of Goya, for example, or I think of Picasso, I think of Matisse. They used to refer to Matisse's paintings as his ugly splendor. I'm interested in, in the fact that you can take something really, really beautiful and put it alongside something really appalling. I'm interested in the fact that out of beautiful things, ugly things grow, and out of ugly things, beautiful things grow. I've always been interested in that. I'm just finishing a stage play at the moment, which I hope will, which is my first play, and I hope will, will get performed. And it's, it seems like a comedy, but it's on the most tragic possible subject. And yet it's very, very light. And I'm interested in rubbing the two together to see what happens. If you take something as awful as this political period was in Ireland, and as vicious and as vile, and some of the violence that takes place in the pages of this book is frightful, and yet at the same time, you have growing beside it a, a sublime love of a man for a woman about whom he will not change his mind no matter what she does. That seems to me very like life. Another one of the, the contrasts in this book is that this is a, a detailed, intense, historical epic set in, in amidst real events, yet you manage to uh, maintain kind of a sense of almost fantasy and, and mystery. We have the Blessed Virgin Mary apparition at Knock. Uh, I'm a big fan of Blessed Virgin Mary apparitions, let me tell you. <laughs> so I was extremely pleased to see this to see this happen. We have fairy circles. There's a scene where you describe the crowd coming out of the forest when they're about oh, yeah. when Treese is about to evict those people. Uh, the 
the people, and you describe them as being like ghosts, and they go back in, and they are ex- like ghosts of what will of the violence to come. Are, why are you interested in this kind of almost aura of the fantastic that permeates this? I have never much liked reality. I don't see that it has any place in a writer's life, and yet I'm extremely practical and down-to-earth and rather placid as a person in many ways. But the placid exterior hides tremendous, prominent, massively enjoyable turmoil. I, I, I love Hieronymus Bosch. I love space fantasy. I loved 2001. I like things that churn up the world. I like things that are beyond our control or explanation, seemingly, until you get into the reality. If you give me the choice between a straightforward piece of reporting and a straightforward piece of reporting of the same incident 10 years later with a lot of embellishment, I go for the latter any time. I love the idea that you can stretch the imagination to create for another human being a piece of tremendous escapist enjoyment, and yet with some touching kernel in it, something to touch the emotion, something to just to twang one of the minor strings of the heart and thereby go on to play on all the major strings of the heart. I think there's a way in which you can use fantasy and reality side by side to bring a tremendous range of emotion to bear within people themselves. And the honor you do your reader is terribly important as a writer. You have got to make your reader understand that what you're doing is you're doing your best for them to try and make order out of their chaos and the way you're trying to make order out of your chaos. And that's really, the chaos resides between the fantasy and the reality. All comedy resides in the gap between aspiration and achievement. One of the other things, you were talking about some of the horrific violence, and one one of the other things that was straight out of today's headlines was the white boys. Oh, yes. Uh, I mean, the, 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 the KKK. I mean... That's right. It, did the, do you know whether or not the, the Ku Klux Klan took their cue from the white boys? I've no idea. The white boys was um, a society of rebels, a secret society of rebels, who wanted to drive the Protestant farmers off their lands. So at nighttime, they dressed in white smocks, white hooded smocks, and they roamed the fields, setting fire to hay barns and hay sheds, setting fire to houses, attacking animals, maiming animals, you know, laming horses, killing cattle in the fields. It was terrifying. They roamed at nighttime carrying blazing torches. Whether or not they had an influence on the founding of the KKK, I don't know, but there are very striking similarities. The difference is that the white boys targeted animals and inanimate objects, and the KKK targeted human beings. Also, I I found really, really interesting the way, just the way that, trying to imagine the way that you went about writing this book, because you have a, a, a character story, a love story, and you've got history, history. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, and, and so I want to ask you, did you map out, like set out on a timeline, these are the events Charlie's almost a, a Zelig-like figure or yeah, a Forrest right. Gump-like figure. That's right. Did you say, these are the events I want to cover, and now I have to weave my story between these events? Or did 
did you just do the talk about start writing with a, you know focusing on the love story and then find out where you went if you go into an Irish pub where they're playing music you'll very often find that a tune starts with an Irish fiddler playing a simple melody and then he begins to decorate it and then the others join in and by the time they're all playing together, five or six of them playing together, they are definitely playing the main tune, but there's a huge number of variations going on there. They're all playing all different kinds of things. It's kind of an Irish jazz in a way. I set down a timeline. I knew that the period I wanted to cover was from 1860 to 1922, the most crucial and important period in the history of the island as we know it. That is when Ireland came to be the country we know today, the country that people visit, the country that has taken a major place in the world. Um, once I had the timeline set down, I then added the story, and I wanted to see how the story would interact uh, with the timeline. There's a great sense, Rick, in which writing a, any novel, but particularly a book like this, is a voyage of discovery. Once you have set down your mooring lines, you're walking, it's like a rope bridge. Once you have a rope on either side to hold, you're crossing the bridge, but there's a fog, and the fog only clears as you're walking forward all the time you begin to see a little further and a little further and a little further ahead. And eventually the book tells you what it's going to be. But it is a voyage of discovery. You don't always know where you're going. You don't always know when characters are going to appear. You don't always know why they're going to appear. And I find it now, it happens very, very often, once you trust to the book itself, once you lay down an honest storyline, once you know that you're trying to give something truthful and genuine to your reader, then the book comes to your aid, and it provides the characters you're looking for. It sounds crazy. It sounds weird and creepy and freaky, but it does happen, believe me. You write in a number of narrative voices. You take on a variety of personas, and each one, it's very quickly clear who's speaking at any moment. And even and that's interesting because, as you mentioned early, none of them are particularly reliable. We come to distrust all of them because it's all clear that all of them have their absolutely. own agenda. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, <clears throat> as you did this as a writer, did you read some of these portions of narrative out loud? Because they do sound like spoken word. That's such an interesting question to me because I've done so much broadcasting that I'm sure it has affected or infected my writing. Um, and, of course, I read the audiobook of this as well for commercial release, as I read the audiobook of the previous novel, Ireland, and the nonfiction book in between, Simple Courage. Um, really? Yeah, I've always, I always record my own audiobooks. I, I do one thing before I hand the book in. And it's the great cleaning process. It's almost the most difficult thing in the world to face. I read the book aloud to myself. That's how you clean the book. That's how you know when you've repeated the same word in two sentences. The ear tells you much more about a book than the eye. We read more with our ear than we read with our eye. Cadence is incredibly important to me in the writing of a book. The, the fluidity of language, the way in which language slips you through a subject, it enables you to smuggle huge ideas if they're conveyed in a very easy communication. And the reading aloud thing, I think, enables me to simplify my prose. Um, it's still classically constructed, 
prose because that's the way I was taught in school. Um, it's still they're still sentences based on the Latin construct of Indo-European languages in the way in which we write English, and the way in which we write English hasn't changed much in the last two three hundred years. It's a little clearer these days, um, but at the same time, there is a sense in which I hope my sentences can be as easily read aloud, could be as easily spoken or read with the eye. One of the really enjoyable and, and fun parts of this book are, are, I guess, what I would call the Zelig sequences, where Char <laughs> Charlie meets a, a, a variety of famous characters. And one of the most interesting to me was Charles Parnell, whom I knew nothing about, but it seems he's the, the Irish Gandhi. He was the Irish Gandhi. That's a very good description of him, and I've never heard that description before. He was a major, he was a landlord, and he was a Protestant Anglo-Irish landlord who believed that what was happening in Ireland was unjust. He was a major political leader. When the Irish got the right to vote in the English Parliament, they elected him as a member of Parliament, as a congressman, if you like, or a senator. And he became a great spokesman for the rights of the Irish to get back their own land under the injustice of the system which took their land away from them. He became the most powerful man. His rallies in Ireland, his political rallies, were attended by up to a million people at a time. Huge, huge crowds gathered to hear him. Enormous crowds gathered to hear him. And he led something called the Irish Party, which held the balance of power in the English Parliament. He was called the lost leader because then he fell from power. It was discovered that he was having an affair with a woman who was divorced, and his Irish, with a woman who was married, actually, and his Irish Catholic voters would not support him after that. The affair becomes known in this book through my Mr. O'Brien. The poor fellow re reveals it uh, haplessly, but it's all done tongue-in-cheek. But there was a real Parnell. There was a real Charles Stuart Parnell. He was a major figure, and he did tumble from grace in exactly the way in which the book describes. And I have to say, I really love your picture of uh, James Joyce as a kind of a, a scamming blowhard. <laughs> he was a scamming blowhard. <laughs> he was a scamming blowhard. He immediately sponges money off poor Mr. O'Brien, who's sitting in a pub on the 16th of June, 1904, which just happens to be the date uh, that is operative in Bloomsday. A lot of this, a lot of this work, a lot of this zelig Forrest Gump element in the book, to which some reviewers have taken tremendous exception, it's practically all done tongue in cheek. It's never to be taken seriously. But sadly, irony doesn't travel. Some people have picked up on the Joyce joke. For example, uh, Joyce tells uh, Mr. O'Brien that he, he sees Mr. O'Brien writing in his journal. And he says that nobody's life is interesting enough to keep a journal every day, except, of course, Joyce's own life. And then uh, he tells O'Brien that he's going to write a series of great books. And O'Brien says to him, if you are going to write, make your work complicated. And that's part of the joke. But the joke goes on. The joke goes on into Yeats and Yeats advising him on how to win um, the heart of this girl when Yeats himself could not win the heart of Maud Gone McBride, the great love of his life. And there are all kinds of, a lot of subtle jokes from my own pleasure beneath the surface of the book. To my astonishment, people are picking them up left, right, and center. And a lot of people are telling me that there's far more humor in the book than they began to realize until they were about one third of the way through. And that's fun. You have uh, a, a love story at the core here, and one thing I think you do very well is to turn uh, Charlie O'Brien into an everyman. And one thing I, I like about this character is he's likable. He's not too likable. 
he's interesting, but he's not too interesting. Could you talk about striking that balance between um, somebody who's there and that we like, but doesn't seem like he's Superman to the point where he's kind of can get annoying? That was the core of the book's difficulty. The construction of his character was the core of the book's difficulty. I wanted a man who was very ordinary, a plain man, if you like, a man you would meet and probably remember, but nothing about him would strike you viscerally. A man who just went about his work in a good and decent and kind way. Villains are much easier to do than writing good men. Um, and at the same time, I wanted him to have a chance of getting the girl. And by making him ordinary, but giving him this aspiration, what I did quite deliberately and, and very, very much planned in advance was I gave him something whereby we would see his growth, his emotional, spiritual growth in the world. I gave him something that would show him, show us how he was acquiring stature. I gave him a wonderful old ruin to restore, which is also a metaphor for what he was trying to do with the Irish and heal them. And as the book progresses, we see this rather friendly man, this rather good man, who is no malice to him, as I said earlier, no spite whatsoever. We see him falling foul of people who wish him ill for other reasons, not because of him. And we see him slowly but surely, gently surmounting all his obstacles, taking in the face everything life is throwing at him, but still remaining upright. And then, slowly but surely, in the second half of the book, coming through for himself. People come to depend upon him. People come to like him. People come to love him passionately, male and female. People come to adore this man whose goodness stands to him. By the time he's 60, he is, in some ways, an emotional giant. And that was the journey I wanted to create. And I couldn't create that journey from a start more dramatic than that of a common man. I didn't want to make him a vile man who became good or a good man who became vile. I wanted to show how an ordinary man, just a perfectly ordinary person, can grow to become magnificent. And in his mother's words, and she would be the one watching out the most for him, he does become magnificent. And that was the arc of the book. It was incredibly difficult to write because it has to be handled very delicately, very subtly. You can't afford any exaggeration. And I had to try and keep the balance between his view of himself, his dearest friend's view of himself, his mother's view of himself, and the view of him that the love of his life takes, and his brother's view of himself, and his father's view of him. And I had to use all these to kind of create a kind of kaleidoscope made of crystal glass and not drop any piece so that it shattered and broke the whole kaleidoscope. On the other hand, we have April. And she's a rather different character. She's much stronger-willed than, than Charlie. He's 22 years older than she is. When he meets her at Oscar Wilde's deathbed in Paris in November 1900, she's 18. She's tall. She's 5 feet 10. She's very beautiful. She has brown eyes. She's very distinct, and she's very precise, and she's rather aloof. He's rather wild-looking. The medicine he was about to administer to Wilde spills and burns a hole in the carpet on the floor. So that would not have been a good idea. Wilde is shortly to die anyway. Um, 
he sees her because in the in the in the in the in the kerfuffle in the in the the fracas over the spilt medicine, somebody bumps into a picture hanging on a wall, and Wilde asks the girl who has come as Wilde's companion um, to fix the picture. So she stands on a chair and she adjusts the picture, and as she turns round, O'Brien is staring straight into her face. Their eyes are level. She's on. The, she's near. She's nearly his height at that stage. He's six foot four. She's looking straight at him. And he becomes completely compelled. He doesn't realize that she's so different from him that he would never dream of approaching her. Not at all. He goes straight in. He stumbles straight in. He charges straight in. He marches straight in. And then we see in her response to him the utter difference between them. She's cool. She's educated. She's from very upper-class society. And her view of the barbarians, of the barbarian Irish, completely governs the way she approaches him. To her, he's underclass. He's Irish. He's wild. He's dangerous. He's out there in Ireland where people are killing other people and people are killing the English. That's not the kind of man she's going to marry. She's going to marry an officer in the British Army who comes from a good family, or she's going to marry a young squire with a farm in the north of England, like one of Jane Austen's characters. Um, and in the contrast between the two of them, and the arc of the book is trying to close that gap between them. That's the difficulty. And you have, you have very early on the question, will he get the girl? And you look at it and you think, he cannot possibly get the girl, especially when she marries somebody else. One of the events that uh, transpires in this, that you cover in this book, is the Easter Rising. Yes. And that's something that we don't know much about here in the America. A bunch of men, a few hundred men, assembled on Easter Sunday morning, 1916, and they marched into the center of Dublin. And they took over the general post office, the biggest building in the center of Dublin. Britain was at war with Germany, it was right in the middle of the Great War. And these men, their leaders said, England's difficulty is Ireland's opportunity, and they decided to lead an armed revolution to try and get the British Empire out of Ireland. They unfurled the Irish flag, and they stood outside the post office and read a proclamation which every Irish school child knows, Irish men and Irish women, in the name of God and of the dead generation from which he derives her tradition of nationhood. And it goes on, it goes on, it goes on. The leader was a man called Patrick Pierce. There were several poets among the leaders, and it became known as the Poets Rising. The people of Dublin and the people of Ireland reviled them completely. They said, this is a bunch of hooligans. This is a bunch of layabouts with guns, some without guns, who just want to make a name for themselves. What do you think? 200 guys tried to take over the British Empire. It was much more seriously intentioned than that. The British obviously hammered them, and after a week, they surrendered. George Bernard Shaw was writing a column in an English newspaper at the time, and he denounced them from on high who did they think they were? How dare they disrupt Dublin like this, in common with the feelings of all his fellow Irishmen? Ten days later, the British government made a crucial error. They executed 15 of these leaders after summary trials, not even show trials. They weren't allowed to represent themselves. There were no lawyers. They, they executed them brutally in a prison yard. One man who had been very injured in the post office, James Connolly, was too weak to stand up, so they shot him in a chair. They put him sitting down in a chair in his pajamas, and they shot him. Shaw, when this warrant started getting out, wrote another column in the newspaper in London, recanting completely everything he had said before, revising his opinion totally, and he changed world opinion. And from that moment on, the Irish in America began to support 
the freedom struggle in Ireland. And that is how the history of modern Ireland was born. It was the poets rising. It was meant to happen all over the country. It didn't. It happened only in Dublin. It was a, an abysmal failure, but from it sprang the War of Independence three years later, led by Michael Collins, which eventually led to the Treaty of with England in 1921, which divided the country into the 26 counties of the Republic of Ireland and the six counties of Northern Ireland, which is where we still are today, but it's all dissolving. And I would expect to see the entire country as one in Europe in my lifetime. What an incredible story. And one of the things that this book does is to bring that to life through the perceptions of, of Charlie. Well, that's the point, really, isn't it? Um, people want to read about people. You learn a lot more about a big subject through the eyes of one participant. It humanizes it, brings it under control, brings it down. It tells us what it's like. And it tells us what it was like to be there. That's hence the Zelig factor, hence the Forrest Gump factor. When I was uh, a boy, uh, not a boy, when I was a young man, when television came to Ireland first, we had many American imports. And one of them was a show called You Are There. Do you remember it? Oh, yes. Which yes. Constructed, reconstructed history. And it would be something like, you know, um, Easter Sunday, 1916. What kind of a day it was, was it? This is how the announcer began. What kind of a day was it? A day like all days, filled with those events that alter and illuminate our time, and you are there. <laughs> well, that's the point, really, of this novel, is he was there. He traveled through this countryside, and he saw how it was, and he reported it to us. And we now have the benefit of his history, this fictional character, wandering through the countryside, telling us what it was like. The, the novel is essentially a 60-year vacation. It is, in a sense. <laughs> it's a 60-year vacation. It does give you a very good social picture of the country he saw. It's an accurate social picture. I'm happy about that. It does take you through the period of history um, that is extremely important in a way that makes it palatable. You can digest it. You can understand what's going on. And you can only do that from the human's eye view. There's no point in taking a god's eye view. But from a human's eye view, who sees things things going on, who knows the personalities involved, and who is himself passionately interested. Well, somebody like that is bound to ignite our interest. We've been speaking with Frank Delaney. His new novel is Tipperary. Thank you for joining me, Frank. Rick, that was a pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.